Glad you guys are along for the ride today. We're in part two of this series called You Asked For It. And like the video showed, we're trying to answer your most asked questions, quite frankly, because a lot of churches get in the habit of answering questions that nobody is asking. I don't want to do that. So you asked, we listened. Let's do this. The question today came in a few different forms. Some of you all asked, how can I realistically apply what I hear and see in Scripture without being a, quote, boring Christian? Apparently you're hanging out with the wrong people. Come hang out with me sometime. We'll have a lot of fun. It ain't going to be boring. I can promise you that. Uh, others asked you, how do I practic- uh, asked, asked us, how do we practically live out my faith every day? Good question. Some of you said, I feel like I leave church fired up, but in a matter of minutes, it all goes out the window. How do I change that? What can I do to live my faith? The good news for you today is there is a guy in the Bible who can help us do just that, and his name is not Jesus. Now, Jesus certainly can help us too, but you expected me to say that as a pastor, so I totally get that. If you're not quite sure about the whole Jesus thing, that's okay for now. Maybe you'll have a different feeling in a few minutes. But there's a guy who lived in a foreign country called Babylon. It's not too different from our own, yet he was able to not just survive in that culture. He was able to thrive. His name was Daniel. Now, if you have some church background, you've likely heard of Daniel. There's a lot of cool stories in the book that he wrote. There's the whole lion's den, which is awesome. There's a fiery furnace. There's this crazy story about a hand just appearing out of nowhere, writing some stuff on a wall, like something you'd see in the Adams family or whatever. I mean, like if you're a Sunday school teacher, the book of Daniel is just like a dream come true. There's so much stuff you can do for the kids with the coloring pages, and you can like dress them up as lions and let them roar at one another, or what? I mean, you can you can start the classroom on fire and call it a you know a fiery. Fr- that's not happening, by the way. I just. For the record, if you put your kids back there, they're not going to start the room on fire. That is why I'm out here and not a kids ministry director. But uh, if you really look at this book of Daniel, you'll, you'll notice that it's never intended to be a kid's story. Daniel was written to adults who live in a Babylon-like culture so that we would know how to have an impact. So this morning, I want us to take a look at Daniel and figure out how we can practically live out our faith in this very post-Christian society. I call America post-Christian because some years ago we could say that here in the States, the uh, culture and the government and the arts and most higher es- uh, education institutions, that they would, they would be very supportive of the Christian belief system. At worst, they were informally supportive. They would let us do some of the things that we want, but they were not antagonistic like they are now. I don't think we can honestly take a look around at what's going on in society and in culture and and say that that they are supportive of the God we serve. I don't know how many of you saw this, uh, the folks who refused to join in the moment of silence on the Senate floor after the Las Vegas shooting, or if you saw the people who tweeted, y'all can quit praying, it ain't doing anything, we need to do something on our own which I'm all for freedom of speech, but don't start telling people to quit praying. Like, my God answers prayer. And 
even when he doesn't answer it the way I would like or that you would like, don't tell me to quit praying. Might as well tell us to quit breathing. Some of them probably would prefer that, but here's my point. We are all like Daniel. We are all as believers living a life and asking ourselves, how can we live a life of integrity in a polytheistic, pluralistic, unbelieving world? Daniel was able to do it. What was his secret? Let's find out. If you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it. You're going to want to open it up to a kind of obscure section, like midway, halfway. If you open up a couple pages into your Bible, you'll see a table of contents. Find Daniel or take out your phone and click to the book of Daniel. You want the very first chapter. That's the big number one. While you're getting there, let me kind of set up where we're going uh, to head and what we're about to read. Daniel is a Jew living in Jerusalem about 600 BC, so about almost 3,000 years ago. It's uh, the Babylonian Empire under the command of a king named Nebuchadnezzar has come to destroy the city of Jerusalem. It's important for you to understand just how wicked the Babylonian Empire was. Babylonia is an area of land located in modern-day Iraq. It's actually thousands of years old. If you know your Bible, you'll see it show up repeatedly. The Tower of Babel in Genesis, the uh, city of Nineveh, Nimrod, the Chaldeans, and Assyrians, that's all within this area of Babylon. And it's the epitome of evil within Scripture, this, the city itself. But even if you're here, you don't trust the Bible or, or uh, anything like that, that's Okay, we know from secular archaeology that Babylon uh, was a was an evil and wicked city. They worshipped multiple gods. The ruling god was a guy named Marduk or Baal is sometimes how they refer to him. People used to burn their children, their living children, to Marduk and sacrifice to him. Kings were notoriously violent. They would kill anybody who opposed or spoke against them. In this book of Daniel, we actually see that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar was getting ready to massacre all of his advisors, yet Daniel stepped in because uh, none of his advisors could give him the exact details of a dream that he had. Imagine the bloodthirstiness that you would have to have and say, tell me my dream or I'm going to kill you. Like Nobody could do that yet. Daniel did because of God. So not only that, but uh, Babylon's state-sponsored religion was satanic. All the king's advisors were uh, enchanters. They had to study astrology and the occult and black magic. You can read about drunken orgies, public executions. That's all within Babylon. In fact, in Scripture, when uh, we get to the end and, and God judges the world the final time, it uses a symbolic language for evil and, and the personification of evil. And it says in Revelation 18.2, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. So not fallen, fallen is ISIS or Nazi Germany or North Korea or Sodom and Gomorrah. It says fallen, fallen is Babylon. Symbolic language for evil being torn down when Jesus comes back. This is what Babylon represents. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, well, well, pastor, you said Babylon was like America. How in the world is Babylon like America? I mean, we're not sacrificing our kids. Our leaders are not promulgating dark arts or killing political adversaries. You sure about that? Because uh, since Roe v. Wade, 60 million babies have been aborted. That's 
20% of the U.S. population gone. Is that not child sacrifice? 1.5 million people in the United States right now victims of human trafficking. That number climbs to 21 million across the world. Is that not worshiping a false god, the god of sex? 25 million people right now addicted to drugs in the United States. I'm not even talking about marijuana. I'm talking about illicit drugs. That's insane. There's no other way to qualify that besides saying it's demonic. Now listen, my point here is we're not too far off where Daniel was at, yet he managed to live a long life of faith. He was almost 80 years old when they threw him into that lion's den. How did he do it? Here we go. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Circle, star, underline, highlight, whatever you do. The Lord gave. The Lord did this. We're going to come back to that. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar put these items on display to publicly mock the God of Israel. And remember, God allowed this. If you know your Old Testament, this is crazy. Other times in Scripture, when holy items are taken, people die. Like God-fearing people touch the the Ark of the Covenant and die. Other towns, entire towns, stricken with tumors. The ground opens up and swallows an entire family. Yet here it says, God allows these holy items to be taken to a demonic temple and put on display. Verse 3. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning. Sounds very familiar. Uh, Never mind, that was a joke. Okay. And competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these, here's our boys, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. Pause. I love how Daniel refers to himself and his friends within Scripture. He says, oh, we were just some good-looking dudes with no blemishes, wise, learned, and competent. You know, kind of a big deal. <laughs> That's us. But here's what I really want you to see in Scripture. Daniel and his friends get caught up in the righteous judgment of God, even though they were innocent. Through no fault of their own, they are enslaved. See, I think one of the things we need to get in our minds is we're trying to figure out how to live a life of faith in an evil world is that God allows good things to, or bad things to happen to good people. And He doesn't need us to apologize for it. Anytime things like what just happened in Vegas or hurricanes or earthquakes, whatever happened, people almost always immediately go, well, how could a good God allow such evil to happen? Listen, innocent people being harmed starts on page 3 of our Bible, right? Wicked Cain kills upright and innocent Abel. 
Most of the Christians want to shy away from this or apologize for God, yet more often than not, God takes credit for it. He said right here in in verse 2, I'm doing this. Now hear me, God never does anything evil. God never sins, yet He'll often use a disaster for His glory. Sometimes the short-term success of the godless is God's will. Now I know what you're wondering. How could the killing of innocent people be in God's will for humanity? So listen to me. I don't know. The Bible doesn't speak on that, but Romans does say that all things work together for good for those who love God are called according to His purpose. All things all things work together for good. So I think it's important for us to realize that anytime something evil, wicked, demonic, and sinful happens, well, I guess let me ask you this. How do you know that those things are wrong? How do you know that those things are wicked, evil, and sinful? Like, where did your sense of righteous indignation come from? I mean, if, if we're just evolved from some primordial ooze, then why is mass murder a big deal? I was just watching a show the other day with my kids. A shark killed a whole bunch of fish and even ate one of its own babies. What's crazy about that is nobody wrote an op-ed piece talking about how we need to start controlling some of these cannibalistic sharks. Got to get them under control. Nobody was up in arms about limiting the number of teeth sharks can have in their mouth. We need to start taking their teeth out. Yet, Yet people are going crazy about what's happening in our world. And listen to me, rightfully so, something does need to be done. And I'll tell you exactly what needs to be done. People need to humble themselves before the Lord. This is a sin issue. This isn't about guns. This isn't about race. This is not about any of those things. This is about evil and our enemy, the devil, making a mockery of our God. What's kind of interesting about this whole Babylonian invasion and, and recorded for us in Daniels, it's also recorded in a book of your Bible called Habakkuk, which if you don't get paid to read your Bible, you've never read Habakkuk, and that's okay. I'll just tell you what it says. The prophet Habakkuk says, God, how long do I have to call out to you? Can you please help us? Have you ever been there? Calling out to God, asking for some help, saying, how long, God, can you not answer my prayer? Well, God says to Habakkuk, I'm about to help you. Do you see that Babylonian horde coming at you? They're going to capture you and enslave you and and take you away to a foreign land. Habakkuk says, wait, what? And God says, yeah, I'm, I'm done messing around with you all, my people, and you're not listening to me. They're just constantly sinning. Habakkuk goes, but we're nowhere near as bad as the Babylonians. And God says, oh, don't worry, I'll, I'll take care of them. But right now, I have to deal with my own. Listen to me, God's more concerned with your long-term holiness than He is your short-term happiness. And sometimes it's going to take something hard to get your attention. And He'll allow something painful so you can fulfill your purpose. And the truth of the matter is, sometimes you're just going to have to be an innocent bystander that gets caught up in this wave of judgment like Daniel. But God will always bring you out better on the other side. Can I hear a good amen, somebody? God's going to work through whatever your situation is. Now, don't worry, I'm going to tell you how you can work through some of these things in just a second, but let's read on. Verse 7, And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Time out. So we got these Jewish boys, likely 14 years old. They've been kidnapped from their hometown 
According to verse 4, they are forced to study black magic and the occult and learn a new language for three years. Now their names have just been changed. Daniel used to mean, or Daniel meant, uh, my judge is God. Now he's called Belteshazzar, which means the prince of Marduk, or prince of Baal. That's what Belteshazzar means. Hananiah means God is gracious, but now he's called Shadrach, commander of Aku. Aku is a Babylonian moon god. Mishael meant God is, but now he's called Meshach, which means who is like Aku. And Azariah meant God helps us, but now he's called Abednego, which means servant of Nebo, another Babylonian god. So the king not only forces them to study black magic and learn the occult and learn this new language, he's trying to take all the Jerusalem out of them, so he renames them these godless names. To further compound the situation, he also has each one of them castrated. I'm guessing you all didn't learn that in Sunday school because you're looking at me kind of funny, but uh, it's verse 7. Who renamed them? The chief of the eunuchs. If you're a chief of eunuchs, then you're leading eunuchs, which are Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Belteshazzar, whatever you want to call them. Which, man, listen, this is so huge. Despite all of this, being kidnapped, being thrown into a seminary of witchcraft, despite being castrated, these four guys live a life that we should all try and emulate. They didn't blame God. They didn't pout. They took advantage of the opportunity and made the most of their lives. How'd they do it? The same way we can do it. And jot this down if you're taking notes. The first thing that we need to do in order to live out our life of faith on a daily basis, when we leave church today, we never forget, number one, that we have hope. Hope. Jesus is our blessed hope. Think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. If you don't know the story, King Nebuchadnezzar builds a 90-foot tall statue to himself. He forces everybody to bow down to, to it. Well, these three cats are standing in the temple square when the time comes for them to bow down and worship the statue. But they're just standing there while everybody else falls down, which clearly it makes them stick out. The king says, hey, y'all better bow down and worship my statue. They say, ain't happening, brother. That's a little paraphrased, okay? (laughs) You don't look for that in your Bible. But the king says, well, you're getting tossed into the fire pit. They say, do what you got to do, but our God is going to deliver us from anything you throw at us. I love that. Well, when you worship the devil, you tend to get a little upset when people bring up the name of God. So King Nebuchadnezzar orders the fire pit to be heated up as hot as possible. It gets so hot that a couple of the brothers throwing logs onto the flame, get close to it, have heat stroke, fall in and die and burn up themselves. Nebuchadnezzar sees it and he says, looks good, boys, throw those other fools in. So they tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, throw them into the fire. King Nebuchadnezzar is watching this happen from an elevated position, so he's looking down on the fire pit, and he looks in and sees not just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire, but a fourth man who was, quote, like a son of the gods. Awesome. What's my point? My point is Jesus Christ was thrown into the furnace with them and with us and for us. 
Jesus Christ suffered not so that we wouldn't have to, but so that when we suffer, we'd become like Him. If you realize that Jesus was thrown into the furnace for you, then you'll feel Him walking in the furnace with you. And you'll know just as through suffering come grace and glory in His life, through suffering will come grace and glory in your own. In other words, you'll have hope. When you understand what Jesus has done for you and that one day God is coming back to make all of this world right again, you will have hope. Here's what's kind of cool about the Bible. I peeked at the end of the story. I know I probably shouldn't have done that, but uh, you know what I found at the very end? We win! We win! So, I don't know about you, but why do I care what the score is in the third quarter if we win? I don't need to be despairing or anxious about anything because I have hope. Did you know in reference to our world right now in 2017, Jesus says in the New Testament that He is going to build His church and the gates of hell shall not overcome it. Well, I don't know what you know about warfare, but a gate is not a super awesome offensive weapon. I'm not a military man, but I've watched a lot of movies, Braveheart, Gladiator, Alexander Troy, all of them. I've never heard any of them say, hey, we're about to head into battle. Quick, somebody go get the gates. (laughs) Nowhere do they ever say that. See, the devil is on the defensive. A gate is a defensive weapon. It's meant to keep people out. Too many Christians are living the wrong posture. We're invading hell, not the other way around. We're going in. Take up your weapon and fight. Come on, somebody. Like, like this is what we believe. We have hope. See, sometimes trials separate the genuine faith from the fake faith. What's fake faith? Fake faith falls down and never gives up. Fake faith has good intentions. Genuine faith has good actions. You're doing something. Fake faith signs up. Genuine faith shows up. If you want to live a life of genuine faith, if you want to know how that looks in real life, then get involved. Practically speaking, start serving. I don't know where. Where's there a need? Well, none of that sounds very cool, Pastor. Um, I don't think being castrated and serving a demon king sounds super awesome either. But sometimes that we have to deal you know, deal with the hand that we're dealt. Practically speaking, sometimes you can start giving like in a way that challenges you. Give more than you did the year before. It's one of the goals that Laura and I set a long time ago. We're just going to try and give more than the year we did before and see what God does. And I promise you, we've never been in need of anything. There's a lot of things that you can do. Pray. Man, our, our world could use some prayer right now. I don't, I don't know what you need to do, but you need to start serving on the offensive side of the ball. Why? Because we have hope. We have hope. What else? If you want to make a difference, you want to live out your faith, what else can you do? What else do you need? Number two, you need humility. Humility. What's humility, humility look like? I'll tell you what it's not. Is not being the best athlete in the room and saying, oh, I'm not that good. That's false humility. Humility is not about you. It's about serving others. Love what C.S. Lewis said. Humility, he said, humility is not, 
uh, thinking of less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. You don't have to think less of yourself. Just think of yourself less. Realize something here. Daniel served a godless king so faithfully and so humbly that he kept getting promoted. He served multiple godless kings and kept getting promoted. Just for the record, so did another guy in your Bible named Joseph who served in Egypt. But our boy Daniel, he made Nebuchadnezzar better. He cared about him even though he didn't agree with him spiritually. What Daniel did, and you'll find this through the entire book of Daniel, is just incredible. He had real, genuine respect for everyone. In fact, you might write this phrase down. Everyone deserves respect, even God's enemies. Everyone deserves respect, even God's enemies. Now, here's an interesting thing, because Nebuchadnezzar is going to get his. Like how God told Habakkuk, hey, don't worry, I'm going to take care of all this. He's about to punish Nebuchadnezzar, and get this, he gives Daniel the right to give Nebuchadnezzar that message. Now, if I'm Daniel, I'm walking in to King Nebuchadnezzar like pumped. I ain't, I'm not downtrodden about the fact that he's about to get his, right? I'm walking in there like, whoo, brother, you're about to get yours. I've waited a long time to tell you this. You cut off my, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm about to, and that's not at all Daniel. It's not what he says. He says, oh, king, I wish it was anybody but you. That's what he says, despite being kidnapped, despite being castrated. Oh, king, I wish it was anybody but you. You see, he understood the heart of God and the heart of Jesus. Jesus is not about wiping out his enemies. He's into winning them over. That's Jesus' heart. That's why the cross is there. That's why people like you and me have received the gift of grace. If we want to influence our world, they must understand that our deepest goal for them is not to see God destroy them. Our deepest desire and self-image is not that we are God's pit bull or watchdog for poor little Jesus who needs us to help him out. We are his followers, his servants who have his agenda to win over the lost. We're not about seeing them wiped out. Like, what if we treated people who are pushing all kinds of crazy agendas onto us like Daniel treated the king? What if we served people humbly even though we disagreed? I'll tell you what would happen. It happened for Daniel. We'd earn the right to be heard. Like, nobody listens to people who they don't believe like them. Like, nobody listens to somebody who they think did not like them. You don't, I don't, I don't need that negativity in my life. So if we're out there screaming, God hates fags and picketing every event we disagree with, how is that helping? People don't care what you know until they know that you care. What does that look like practically? It means get to know people. Build relationships. If you're a Republican, start hanging out with some Democrats. God forbid. If you're white, get around some folks that ain't white. Show them that you aren't weird. If you are weird, don't do anything I just said. Okay, that's not going to help. Any, I'm kidding. But get out of your comfort zone. Build relationships. Do life. Have people over. Serve them in humility. 
Pay for the person in the drive-thru behind you. You want to get super practical? Give the waitress who just gave you a horrible service a great tip. Pray for people. Bottom line, start viewing people as a child of God with a soul that He cares about because, listen to me, He does. Be humble as God is humble. Last one, number three, develop wisdom. Be wise. Specifically, be wise around the things of God. Daniel drew a hard line on some things. What he would or wouldn't eat, for example, I imagine there's a sermon in that. How he would pray, he drew a hard line on that. We're going to talk about that in January, actually. Daniel, though, also knew the difference between what he didn't like and what God forbid. He had wisdom to pick his battles. I'm going to say that again in case somebody wanted to tweet that out because y'all are just kind of looking at me blank. But Daniel had the wisdom to know the difference between what he didn't like and what God actually forbid. I'm sure he didn't like being called Baal's prince. I'm sure he didn't like having to learn black magic. But he didn't sit in the back row and pout. He took copious notes. He graduated at the top of his class, which earned him the right to speak to the king about the one true God of the universe. That would have never happened, and he would have never been able to do that if he crossed his arms and said, I ain't doing this. The Bible says I can't study astrology, which it did. And yet, he knew the difference between what he didn't like and what God forbid. And here's what's interesting. I haven't found a scripture in this Bible that says, I'm the Jesus police for a non-believer. Which I have found a passage in 1 Corinthians 5, 9 that says, those who don't know Jesus are allowed to act like they don't know Jesus. But me, my job is... Some, as someone who claims to know Jesus is to help those who also claim to know Jesus and correct them in love. I don't need to be the Jesus police if somebody doesn't know Jesus, so listen very closely to me. The people who don't know Jesus are not my enemy. They are victims of my enemy. Come on, somebody. We need to be able to navigate the world around us and pick the battles that actually will earn us the right to influence people. So what does that look like practically? Well, you have to know where you're going to draw a line in the sand. What are the non-negotiables? I'll tell you what the non-negotiables here at New Anthem are. The Bible is the Word of God. That's a non-negotiable for us. Jesus is the Son of God and the only way to salvation. That's a non-negotiable for us. You have to be born again in order to inherit eternal life. And at the moment you are born again, you inherit the Holy Spirit, and you can live a Spirit-filled life. Like, like that's a non-negotiable for us. Those are our main things. That's what I want us as a church to be known for, a Bible-believing, Jesus-preaching, every person welcoming, and every community-having church. That's what we're about. What are you about? Because God has called you to be a light in a dark world. Now, you might be thinking, well, Pastor, I'm not a very bright light. I've got a lot of things that I need to do. Well, as we close, I want you to take a look at this video that might help each one of you. When my kids were young, my wife and I, we took them all on a vacation, went to Carlsbad Caverns. Any of you ever been there? Okay, a few of you, you know. When you get there... uh, it's kind of a fun thing to go down in a cave, except for one thing you need to know in this story, and that is my wife has claustrophobia. 
Now, she's not crazy claustrophobic, but you can see crazy from where she is. And so when we go there, uh, I think she's going to stay up in the visitor center the whole time while we go down and do the tour and all that. But if you've been there, it's so big. The caverns are big. The, the, the elevator's huge. And she shocks me by going, hey, I think I'll go down with you. We go down, opens up in this huge, massive cavern. Her shoulders just go like this. And she actually says, I think I'll go on the tour with you guys. I'm like, great, family memory, this is so cool. So we're waiting in line for our tickets, and as we're waiting there, some guy walks out, and he says to his buddy, that was so cool when they turned the lights out. (laughs) Now that left me with a moral dilemma. Do I tell her or not? I didn't tell her. (laughs) But she heard. So she looks at me and she goes, they turned the lights out? And I said, oh, honey, it's, it's just for a second or two. Are you sure? Um, trust me, I'm a pastor. Yeah. <laughs> so we go on the tour. Everything is great. And if you've been on it, you know, but at the very end, they sit you on these little logs to show you how pitch dark it is. You can't even see movement in front of your face. They unplug a cord and the lights for a few seconds. 1,001, 1,002, 1,011, 1,012. And then a bat bit me like, ah, and I could feel the blood. And, and then the bat spoke. you're slow it said I will never trust you again (laughs) which is bad in my profession and then I remembered my oldest son was seven at that point and he had one of those new Timex Indiglo watches you know you push the button and you could see at night now I want to tell you how weenie that light was when we got it for him he pushes a button at night in his bedroom and he can't see anything we had to get a flashlight to see what time it was that's a, would you agree? That's weenie light, right? But I remember he had it. I'm desperate, you know. The, the bat still is like sucking blood. And, and, and I go, Nathan, push the button on your watch. And he does. And you could suddenly see feet. And you could see ground. The bat let go. My marriage was saved. And I learned the most powerful lesson ever. And I want to leave you with it. The darker it gets, the brighter the tiniest of lights shines. That light couldn't tell him what time it was in his bedroom in San Diego at night, but it could have let us out of that cave. You matter. And God puts you here for a purpose. And He taught us the story of Daniel so that we would know what buttons on the watch to push. You matter. God put you here for a purpose. Doesn't matter how bright your light is, but if you have hope in Jesus Christ, if you'll serve people humbly, if you'll be wise about which battles to pick, you'll be able to lead people into the same hope that you have found by using the gifts and talents that God has given you. Every head bowed, every eye closed. Let's pray. God, thank You for allowing us to be here and to worship. For giving us this story of Daniel to show us how to live life in a dark world. God, I'm just praying as people leave here today that You are able to encourage them. To show them what it means to live for You how that can look at work, 
or at school or any of these things. Show them who they need to be humble around. Show them where they need to be wise about picking certain battles and allowing people who don't believe in you to do whatever they need to do. But also, God, I pray that you are able to show each person here how they have hope and how they can communicate that hope to a very dark world. God, if there's somebody here this morning who hasn't trusted you, who doesn't have this hope in your son Jesus, I ask that you would move and stir in a powerful way right now. If that's you, if you have never trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you don't have this hope that I just talked about, I'd invite you to to place your trust in Jesus right now. You can do that just by praying a prayer in your heart. The Bible says if you just repent of your sin, you'll be saved. I want to give you a chance to do that. You can say, God, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned. I'm sorry I haven't followed you. But I believe in Jesus. I believe he died for me. I believe that he rose from the dead. I want your spirit to live in me. Thank you for saving me. Help me live for you. And God, I thank you for this hope. I thank you for Jesus. And I just pray a special blessing over each person that's here today. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.
doesn't matter how bright your light is. What matters is, is, is it shining? And really, the bottom line, I could sum up my entire message in two words. You want to leave this place? You want to, you want to know how to live your faith every day? Be nice. Just be nice. People will get to learn the love of Jesus, and then you'll have your opportunity to influence them and speak in to their life. Hey, y'all asked about, man, Pastor, you talk about the devil and that we have this spiritual enemy and all these things. What's that all about? What's spiritual warfare when you talk about that? We'll talk about that next week. Hope you can be back for that. If you're coming to Essentials of the Faith at the office, we'll start at noon. You got plenty of time to go grab yourself something and eat, uh, but we'll meet you there at noon. Let me pray. We'll be done. God, we love you. Thank you again for giving us 
uh, an opportunity to hear from your word today. We just ask that you be with each person today. Uh, Help them show the love of Christ for each person uh, as they leave today and are encountered with people uh, in their lives on a daily basis. God, we just again thank you so much for the free gift of grace through your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. I'll see you next week.